0: You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace D.C. Network in Northeast D.C. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Way back in the fall of 2020, do you remember that time? Back in the throes of the pandemic lockdown. Some of you were still were in this congregation at that time, some of you weren't. <laughs> But our church hosted a series of lectures with our then-visiting theologian for mission, Dr. Gregory Thompson. In one of those talks, Dr. Thompson pulled up a famous picture of a sit-in during the Civil Rights Movement, a sit-in from Jackson, Mississippi, of a segregated lunch counter in the year 1963. And in this striking and memorable photograph, three college students, white and black together, dressed in suits and dresses calmly and soberly, resolutely, sit at the lunch counter while a mob of people stand behind them, harassing them, pouring milkshakes and Cokes and food all over their head, yelling at them, hitting them, a a mob of white men. And we looked at that picture, and Dr. Thompson asked this question, how did these people get like this? He said, I can barely handle someone taking my parking spot without arguing with them in my mind all the way home. How were they able to do this? The answer, he said, is very simple. They were formed to do it. They were formed to commit that practice. And he said, I don't mean that in some sort of merely mechanistic way, but that they had submitted to a process and a community that formed them into these kind of people in preparation for these kind of acts that took place in Jackson and all around the country. Young men and women who were formed in the ways of love, in the ways of nonviolent resistance, in the ways of suffering, but they were formed to become lovers and nonviolent militant warriors for love by a young pastor named James Lawson. James Lawson was one of the great practitioners and philosophers and architects of the civil rights movement as we know it. The freedom rides, the sit ins, so many demonstrations. Martin Luther King called James Lawson the greatest theorist of nonviolence in the 20th century. He was the human force behind the formation of those students who took those radical postures of suffering and resistance, right? He himself had spent a decade of preparation to form himself and form others into this kind of way of suffering and bearing witness of love. He had studied New Testament social ethics, he had studied nonviolent philosophy, and most of all, he had studied the life of Jesus Christ, a life of resistance but nonviolence and he had begun this work 5 years before in, in a red brick sanctuary at First Baptist Church of Nashville Tennessee he ran these training drills with these students where they literally ran drills of simulated experiences of people yelling at them of people being violent with them and the men and women who were formed in that room would become revolutionary world changers people like john lewis people like Diane Nash. They were formed in that little old sanctuary in Nashville. And Dr. Thompson summarized this movement and how it formed people in five points. He said it gave these students an imagination for dreaming the kingdom, meaning they had an imagination for a different social order than the one that they lived under. He said they didn't just put on their ties and suits and let white people be mean to them uh, as a form of uh, politics they actually were trying to embody a politics of redemption James Lawson said we were from another world he gave them secondly a mind for understanding the world the prevailing philosophies the status quo of how people were thinking and living he gave them third a heart for embracing humanity nonviolent resistance of people not demonizing them or being violent with them but loving them enough to resist their own evil and ignorance fourth He gave them a capacity for enduring suffering. This work, this worth of birthing a new world would take themselves, putting them in postures where they would suffer. And lastly, he gave them a community for nurturing growth, a community where people could be formed for this kind of demonstration together. See, James Lawson knew that he couldn't form these students. He had to form these students before sending them out into the wild of the buses and lounge counters and, and voter registration drives because he knew that this, the kind of opposition they face would prepare, would, would, they would be faced with so much suffering. He knew that the violence and vitriol and evil awaiting them in Nashville or Jackson or wherever this fight would be fought. He couldn't send them out into this kind of world unformed for that opposition. It would be like sending someone on a backpacking trip with no backpack and no supplies. It would be like Reverend Dr. Erwin Entz handing one of us a 32-kilogram kettlebell and asking us to do a Turkish get up <laughs> before leading us through all the steps of all the different kettlebells on his torture, I mean, training program. <laughs> See, a good trainer or a good coach has to form you in a capacity for suffering. Because it's only through the points of pain and physical exercise that you meet the points of growth and transformation. The church of Jesus Christ is called to form people for a life of bearing witness to a different kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom not of this world or from this world. And form them with a capacity for enduring suffering whenever it comes. Well, here we are and we arrive at a catalytic point in the book of Acts. What happens here in Acts chapter 6 and 7 is going to have a ripple effect through the rest of the whole entire book. And Pastor Russ and I will treat these two chapters in tandem this week and next week. This is a moment of great testing and suffering for the church, beginning with Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian movement, who displays an example, a kind of example of suffering and witness that will be followed by many after him. One of our last sermons, we dealt with the internal conflict of the church that arose with the Hellenist widows, and now we come to external conflict, the church's witness coming in conflict with the powers that be wherever the church is. I want to ponder this brief text today through two points, the training for bearing witness and the test of bearing witness. The training and the test. We are first introduced to Stephen only a few verses before this. We don't know very much about him other than he is a Hellenistic, that means culturally Greek, Jewish man, Stephanos, who has joined this movement called The Way. He has become a follower of The Way, those professing faith in Jesus of Nazareth, those holding to Jesus' words and his commands as the Messiah of God's people. Stephen is a proven leader in the community and was just appointed one of the first deacons of the church, beginning in Acts chapter 6 that we looked at two weeks ago together. They said that, the text said that they chose Stephen because he was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And what we see here is that Stephen, as part of his training for bearing witness, was formed in the way of word and deed. See, in verse 8, he is full of grace and power. He's doing wonders and signs among the people with power and grace. He is out there in the mix. He's healing. He's restoring. He's serving. He's doing deeds of justice and mercy. Yes, that is the work of one who is full of the Spirit. But also we see in verse 10 that he was speaking the word of God, that he was speaking the wisdom of God, so much so that the hearers and those who he was debating with and contending with and proclaiming to could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. See, Stephen was attaching word to deed. If you serve long enough in the way of deed, the path will often clear for the way of word. In our society, deed often earns trust. Deed earns a hearing with people that could then be married to the word the word of Jesus Christ, the word of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Stephen has been in a holistic training program that reared him in a robust knowledge of the wisdom of God. He understood the scriptures, as will be apparent in our sermon next week. But not only that, he didn't just know theology. He was doing proper theology, which is communion with the Spirit of God. He was in deep communion with the Spirit of God, as the text reveals So much so that the opponents could not withstand the reasoning. He understood how they thought. He understood how to answer them according to their own arguments, but also to winsomely and forcefully and with boldness contend for the kingdom of God. So he was formed for word and deed as part of his training. As part of his training also, he was formed with a capacity for enduring suffering. Because Stephen, at his posture and who he's speaking to, is getting himself in some trouble. He is engaging in socially, religiously, politically risky business. See, just because you're full of wisdom doesn't mean your life is going to be safe. Sometimes wisdom will take you into the most dangerous of places. Because wisdom is being conformed to the way of God. And the way of God will sometimes be countercultural and in deep conflict with the way of the world. but he is bold. He is courageous, he is determined. We are tempted to look at Stevens and see them as the exceptional cases, who plop out of heaven ready for the courageous work before them. But we have to remember that Stevens are not born, Stevens are made. <laughs> Stephen was formed within the young movement called Tain Odon, the way, eventually Christians in Acts 11. The followers of this movement had been told that the kind of event Stephen was undergoing, they had been told it was coming. They were prepared in literal drills, we could say, ready to occupy that space. He was part of a community that prepared him for this test in his life. You see, the original movement leaders, called the apostles, had been in training with their teacher and master Jesus for years. Consistently, their teacher had predicted not only his own suffering, but also their suffering. Jesus told the disciples over and over again, I am headed to the place of suffering. I am headed to the place of rejection and testing and betrayal. And if you are going to follow me, that will be your path as well. Jesus told the same author, Luke chapter 21, Jesus said this, He said, they will lay hands on you. They will persecute you. They will deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And then he said this, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And then in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had told his disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. So why? So that they could be his witnesses to a watching and waiting world. But this work was not easy, and nor was it comfortable. This is about like the third arrest narrative in the book of Acts. In just a couple of chapters before, in chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested, and they're brought before the council. And eventually, they get to escape at that time, and they're released from that experience. But afterwards, it reveals that the church had a prayer meeting after that time. And here's what they did they prayed to God and asked for help. And they said this, Lord, look upon the threats being made against us and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Stephen was formed in a prayerful community. Not just an activistic community, but a contemplative community. A prayerful community that relied upon the boldness, grace, power, and sustainment that did not come from their own abilities, their own intuitions, or their own courageousness. It came from God's enablement. The power belonged to God. That's the same thing the text emphasizes for us again here with Stephen. The Lord is with them, him. He is speaking in the spirit. He is operating out of grace, out of power. This is divine language. This is what God has given to Stephen. So that's the training program that came upon Stephen before the test came upon him. You cannot look at the great saints and martyrs of church history like Stephen as isolated, strong individuals. Again, no. They are products of their community of faith and they are conduits of God's power and presence in word. Now, that's the training. Let's look at the test that befalls Stephen. Stephen's opposition is a multi-ethnic collection of perhaps formerly enslaved Jewish members of a synagogue, a Jewish religious community, and as Stephen's public ministry has spread, they have become aware of it, evidently, and have become aware that what Stephen is proclaiming has direct effects upon their system of belief the temple, the law, the custom, the whole supporting cultural structure. So they gather together the powerful structures of religious leadership, the elders and the scribes, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the same council whom Jesus himself had appeared before in a mock unjust trial. The gospel of the kingdom of God come in Jesus was at odds with the religious, social, political, and economic order of the day because these things were wed together. To speak against temple, to speak against law, or to speak, against, uh, to speak rather of their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, was affecting people's religious identities, their social identities, and their economic status. And in this case, yes, it was a multi-ethnic representation of the Jewish religious social order, but the fact is that this kind of resistance befell and befalls the church wherever it goes as long as the church is faithful to the proclamation of the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Stephen's model of resistance, of bearing witness, and eventual martyrdom will become an example for generations of Christians after him. Just in that same generation, James and Peter and Paul, all of them would be put to death by Roman authorities. In the next generation, the second century after that, Ignatius and Polycarp, Syrian Christians who were formed themselves directly under the apostles. Tradition says that Polycarp was an apostle of the disciple John. They are both martyred at Rome because of their Christian resistance to the imperial, religious, social, economic, and political order. A century later, uh, Patamenea, oh I forgot her name, Yeah, Patamenea is an enslaved woman in Alexandria, Egypt who refused to offer her body to her Roman master And so was martyred. Her witness was so inspiring that it inspired the conversion and eventual martyrdom of the Roman guard who was imprisoning her. Basilides. All the way to San Perfecto, a Spanish martyr under Islamic rule in 9th century Iberia. All the way to Wang Mingdao, a Chinese pastor of the 20th century who, along with his wife, suffered 35 years of imprisonment from 1955 to 1980, because of his refusal to compromise with communist secular authorities. All the way to February 2015, when 20 Egyptian Coptic Christians and 23 Ethiopian Orthodox Christians were martyred on the beach of Libya, because they refused to compromise their faith and to uh, denounce their faith in Christ. And as they were killed on video in a propaganda video released by ISIS, you can hear them crying out, Oh Lord Jesus, as they are killed on the beach in Libya. And a migrant worker who was with them from the country of Chad was not a Christian, but upon hearing the witness of those beside him, he cried out, Their God is my God. We see this pattern over and over again in the history of the church. Christians who are faithful to the proclamation of the kingdom of God that come into direct conflict with the powers that be wherever it falls. It's not a problem that uniquely befell the church in a Jewish setting. It befalls the church in any setting. The church, when it is most faithful to Jesus, forms communities ready for suffering and testing and bearing countercultural witness. But it's hard to discuss this in our context, isn't it? Even as I bring up those stories of resistance and martyrdom, maybe some of you are uh, unhealthy, uh, uh, you're uncomfortable, with this paradigm coming into our American context. Because it's hard because the church's record is both horribly lamentable on one side, but also utterly inspiring on the other side. You might be hesitant to embrace the suffering Christian motif because we live in the wake of a Christian movement that has for hundreds of years grabbed for power, grabbed for wealth, grabbed for comfort, all while claiming the mantle of the name of Christ baptizing horrible social orders of racism, of brutality, of violence, of stealing. We should admit that. We should be the first ones to admit that. The fact is that Christian communities in the United States should have been persecuted a long time ago for their resistance to the systems of the day, to the American empire, to its violence, greed, and brutality. But many, because it was was difficult to stand for justice, they chose to compromise their faith and the word of Christ in order to avoid suffering. They, didn't want to avo- they wanted to avoid the loss of money. They wanted to avoid the loss of social acceptance. And perhaps some of them wanted to avoid the loss of their very lives. For white churches and white ministers and white Christians who stood against the racist social order of the day, they suffered. And we should remember their witness. We should not just say that Christians were—they uh, all had blind spots, which is passive language. There were Christians who resisted. And indeed, we sit in the heritage of those black and brown Christians in America who resisted because of their faith. Those Christians who chose to be witnesses for Christ's kingdom by resisting the idolatry and the evil of their day. I think prominently about those generation and those saints of American Christians who resisted, many of whom to the point of shedding their blood. And in fact, as I've dwelled on the subject this week, we might say that the Christian communities that are most faithful to Jesus and his way are those who form their people not for comfort and power and affluence, but who form their people to be ready for resistance and suffering. Back to Stephen's test. The opposition to Stephen cannot find a way to attack the substance of what he is saying. Because again, he is contending with clarity. He knows the scriptures. He loves the Lord. He actually loves the temple and the law and their place and time. But he is uh, is proclaiming God's fulfillment in the kingdom. So because they can't attack the substance of who he is, they start to attack his character. Then they, against the true witness of Christ, bring forth false witnesses, false martyrs. (laughs) to lie on him by saying that he said Jesus will destroy the temple. In fact, Jesus never said that. Actually, Jesus, had never, uh, Jesus never said that. Stephen never said that. So they don't deal with his arguments honestly. They feel threatened by what he is saying, and they just want to shut him up. So that's the nature of Stephen's trial, and it maps on to the same kind of trial that Jesus himself had had. And the last section, the last verse in this text is a little, a curious little verse to us. All of the witnesses of the trial look at him, and they said they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's how the passage ends. And I think at first glance, that verse seems like a little curious observation. But if we put the verse in the context of the whole story of Scripture... We will see what Luke is saying here. See, the first time someone's face gets changed in the Bible is when Moses goes up to behold God's glory on Mount Sinai. When he communes with the glory of God, when he's exposed to God's glorious presence, what happens? He comes down, back down to the people with a shining face, so bright that he had to put a veil on. Stephen's Lord, Jesus, at his transfiguration... Again, Luke, the same writer of Acts, says in his gospel in chapter 9 that while Jesus was praying up on the mountain, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. Jesus' face was altered because he, he was again in the glorious presence of the Father. He was being prepared for the kind of witness-bearing he would have to do. What Luke is saying is that Stephen is in deep communion with God as he undergoes this test. He is not alone. The testing of the Christian life, the path towards suffering, whatever suffering it is, the path toward resistance, the path towards bearing witness, is a path not just following after the example of Jesus. It's a path into the glorious presence with and of Jesus. Because to suffer with Jesus, you have your life to be molded onto his life. Because Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the lamb who was slain. He is the one mocked and rejected and betrayed and abandoned. And he is the one who put himself at odds with the religious, social, economic, and political powers of his day. He is the one who the book of Hebrews said, learned obedience by what he suffered. He is the one who Luke said, grew in wisdom and favor with God and men. See, Jesus, as God made into true flesh, true humanity, had to be himself trained to bear witness. We don't like to think about Jesus like that. We think, again, he plopped down ready to go, but Jesus had to grow his capacity to suffer. It took 33 long years of training till he was ready for that ultimate act of witness when he would proclaim the kingdom of God against the kingdoms of this world, when he was eventually betrayed. When he was arrested, when he was mocked, when he stood before the Sanhedrin council, when he stood before Herod and didn't say a mumbling word, when he conversed with Pilate and said, my kingdom is not of this world, when he let himself helplessly be led away and endured a a torturous, painful, and real suffering death on the cross. This is the Jesus who Stephen knows. This is the crucified God. This is the Lord of glory. And for Stephen, in this moment of suffering and testing, He is drawing strength and power by the fact that he is being brought into conformity and to union with the way of Jesus. He is being held up in our text today as another little Jesus. See, James Lawson could train people for resistance and suffering, but his spirit could not be with them as they suffered. He had to send them off alone. Reverend Dr. Irwin Ince can train you to lift a kettlebell, but he can't lift the kettlebell for you. His spirit can't be within you to empower you. But Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, could truly be with his beloved as they suffered. By his spirit, he could work through his people. He could give his word to his people. Because the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is our vital connection to to the living Lord Jesus. His life in us, his words through us, his deeds in us. That's what the text is doing. Stephen in this place is not alone, friends. He is drawing from a deep, uh, abundant well of power. And that's why he can go into the hardest places. He can go into the hardest places even with a look of courage and a peaceful contemplation on his face because he's not forgetting who's with him in the suffering. Three points of application for our community, suffering, wisdom, and witness. We must see our community here at Grace Mosaic as a community preparing people to suffer. Pastor Russ likes to say that you've only met two kinds of people, those who are headed into suffering are those who are headed out of it suffering will befall us all and to be in touch with the kingdom of god in the way of jesus means that we do not live by the lies of this world that tell us if we arrange our life with enough comfortable goods with enough insurance with enough intelligence that we will avoid the way of suffering jesus says suffering is coming for you are you going to be ready for it So we, as a community of leaders at this church, are trying to prepare you for the suffering that will come your way. And that suffering can take on many forms. Maybe it's the loss of a dear friend. Maybe it's a horrible accident. Maybe it's the real result of your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And your witness, even to those who misrepresent your words and attack your character. I don't know what kind of suffering will befall you, bearing witness for Jesus, but I know that he promised it would come. So we want to be a community here who is suffering, who is preparing people for a capacity for enduring suffering together. Secondly, we want to be a community forming people into the way of wisdom, into the ways of imagining the kingdom, knowing the ways of the kingdom, And as we've already said, wisdom comes from deep communion with God, vital connection to the Holy Spirit. We want you all as leaders of this church to know the word. (laughs) We want you, though, to also understand the world that you live in, to not take for granted its assumptions, its philosophies, its moral and ethical uh, decisions, but to both know the way of Christ and to know the way of this world. And to be a wise people. And as I've already said, to be formed into being a wise people is not to be formed into being a safe people. It is being a people who know when to resist. Who know when to resist racism. Who know when to resist materialism and idolatry. Who know when to resist sexual immorality. Who know how to stand with boldness for Jesus and his kingdom against the ways of this world. So lastly, we want to be a community that learns how to bear witness. We have to begin to experience Jesus not just as the object of our worship or as our religious affiliation, but as the goal of our obedience. We have to begin to look at the life of Jesus as the one who is our coach, who is our trainer, who is teaching us the kind of postures it will take bearing witness to his kingdom. And you may hear this and say, this doesn't sound attractive to me. And amen. It doesn't sound comfortable or attractive. But Jesus said this, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world and because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Here's the thing, family. When it comes to the call to bear witness, we have to be real that we've often failed, haven't we? We've often had that precipice come upon us, that moment of great decision where, in a conversation or a conflict, we have an opportunity to match word with deed and bear witness to the king who is the king of kings. But we fail. We find ourselves fearful. We find ourselves not wanting to suffer the consequences of associating with Jesus. (laughs) You're in like company too. Remember Peter, who told the Lord, I will never deny you. Lord, where you go, I will go. I know your word. I know your way. I love your kingdom. You know I love you. And then the going got tough, didn't it? And then the knives came out. And Peter started contemplating his own death. <laughs> Peter started contemplating his own suffering as he looked at what was about to befall Jesus and anyone associated with Jesus, and he dropped off. And he was asked three times, Yo, you with him? Nah. No. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not with him. You don't just come from a family of martyrs who are faithful Christians. You come from those who fail. But as I said at the beginning, You have to work through the pain of failure to grow up into the way of Jesus. We have to learn from our failures and learn how to bear witness to Jesus, trusting in his care for us, trusting in his love for us, and trusting that his kingdom is worth it all. It is worth selling our lives out to because he is the one of wisdom. He is the suffering servant who leads us into the way of suffering. Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.